Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. I'd like to talk with you today about this connection between sowing and reaping. The connection between what we shared in so beautifully here on Monday and the pressing need of our day. I'd like to talk with you about the connection between praying and sowing for a great awakening. Because we can all see, can't we, that we can't put enough police on the streets. We can't build prisons fast enough to solve the problem. We, education is just not cutting it. Our politics are in complete upheaval right now out of the fear and frustration of recognizing that government can't solve our problems. We can't expect it to. The problems are deeper. They're greater than that, which is something you and I understand as descendants of an awakening movement. Our origins, our kindredness, our instinct and native yearning from the Wesleyan impulse is for awakening, for a new work of God, for the fresh in-breaking of the Spirit's power and love and an abundant in-gathering of the newborn, the reborn into the church for the kind of healing and vitality and fervor and unity that we really can't explain in human terms, kind of like this convergence of schedules this week. No one could have orchestrated that. This, this kind of occurrence that we need so desperately that is beyond human excellence, beyond what we can plan or program, We Wesleyans long for the things that only God can do, the effects of grace. Awakening is that beautiful, that vast and glorious and captivating. We've seen it right here. The first great awakening unfolded in three theaters in Scotland, England with the Wesleys, and in colonial America from about 1730 to 1745, led by Jonathan Edwards. It was really Wesley who introduced the other two, the Scots reaching out to Wesley for concerted prayer and him encouraging them to correspond with Edwards for that. Uh, Edwards was in Northampton, Massachusetts, and he wrote that Northampton appeared full of the presence of God in almost every house, spreading to more than 20 communities all across western Massachusetts and Connecticut, which really was the, the edge of the frontier at that time. And then with the arrival of George Whitfield, the roving lightning rod of the First Great Awakening, revival spread throughout the southern and then the mid-Atlantic and all across the New England colonies. All the churches grew. Missionary work began and grew. Six of the nine colonial colleges, what we refer to as the Ivy League, were all the result of awakenings. A distinctive American theology began to grow up under the magisterial reflections of Edwards, colonial America's greatest thinker. Really... Our culture was formed in that awakening. The soul of our society in many ways was set in that first awakening. Revival embers smoldering during the Revolutionary War were fanned back into flame in the second Great Awakening, again occurring kind of in three phases, beginning with the camp meetings, which burst onto the scene at Cane Ridge, not too far from here in Bourbon County, and then all spread throughout the early 1800s. And then there was the more learned yet still very warm-hearted revival work of Lyman Beecher in New England. And then came Charles Finney, who blended a kind of educated credibility with bold frontier zeal across all upstate New York to really 
bring the, the second great awakening into about 35 or 40 years of continuous advancement. Finney took his inspiration in many of his practices from the Methodists who accounted for more than 40% of all clergy in America at that time. He said, we must have exciting, powerful preaching, Finney lectured, or the devil will have all the people except what the Methodists can say. (laughs) Beecher, Lyman Beecher, considered Finney's first year-long meeting in Rochester, New York, and I'm quoting him, to be the greatest work of God and the greatest revival of religion that the world has ever seen in so short a time. Taverns closed, crime dropped by two-thirds, jails stood empty for years. American churches multiplied fourfold during the Second Great Awakening. The proliferation of the American missionary movement really can be traced directly to it. So much social reform in prisons against child labor for women. The first co-educational college in America was Finney's Oberlin. Track it all back to the awakening. Historians have attributed abolitionists' refusal to accept any kind of gradualism in the freeing of the slaves to the ethos for action now, for you to make a decision now, tonight in all the revival meetings of the Second Great Awakening. The YMCA, countless colleges and universities, the American Bible Society, so much good can be traced directly back to the awakening. It is that beautiful, that vast and glorious and captivating. There is this built-in, self-correcting, reanimating capacity in the Christian movement due to the Spirit's residence in the church. Christian history really is the story of successive seasons of awakening. We love it. We yearn for it. We are desperate for it today, now more than ever in our culture, in our churches, in our families, in ourselves. We want to sow for awakening, for a new work of God in our day. Well, what about that sowing piece? I mean, all kinds of spine-tingling anecdotes can be unwound about revival's triumphs and heroes. But in all honesty, where does it come from? Where does awakening start? How do we sow for a great awakening? That's the question I took in the fall of 2010 as a part of my PhD research to the islands of Lewis and Harris in the Outer Hebrides of far northern Scotland, looking for anyone who might remember anything about the Hebridean revival, what some historians consider to be the last true awakening in the Western world. The key leader of the Hebridean revival, Duncan Campbell, finally consented to come for 10 days in 1949 and ended up staying for nearly three years. The best account of the Hebridean revival is in a book called Sounds from Heaven, which includes this really long appendix of 23 eyewitness testimonials, 11 of whom... I was able to meet and interview in the little sanctuary of the Church of Scotland in Barvis, the Isle of Lewis, 
where this awakening began. And the tears still flowed freely as these men and women now in their 80s began to recount for me what it was like when God moved among the people. And I, I, I asked, I could go on and on about the miraculous stories they told me, but I asked them, okay, was it, was it Duncan Campbell's preaching or was there some sort of unique model that was indigenous, sort of in this context that proved especially effective? And yes, all of these were important, they said, but to a man or woman, they described something more essential, a kind of spiritual posture that was found among some who were the catalytic core of this awakening, a a spirit of urgency and audacity, an attitude of brokenness and desperation, a manner of prayer that could be daring and agonizing. These friends in the Hebrides referred to it as travailing prayer, like the Holy Spirit groaning through us, they said, like a woman giving birth, a woman in labor, like Paul in Galatians 4.19, travailing as if in the pangs of childbirth that Christ might be formed in you. And I can tell you, ever since I looked into the eyes of those people who once saw what you and I so long to see, I've become convinced that the real beginnings, the true native soil of awakening, is the plowed up hearts of men and women willing to receive the gift of travail. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Now, that prayer is the precursor to the work of God, always the preparatory, anticipating, active awakening is not a new idea. But this may be a type of praying that has been lost, not in Christian communities of Asia or Africa or Latin America, but somehow forgotten in the West. This was the praying of the Hebrews who groaned in their slavery and cried out, Exodus 2.23, and God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant. This was the prayer of Hannah for a child, overcome to the point of being misunderstood as intoxicated in her petitions. But I was not drinking wine or beer, 1 Samuel 1.15. I was pouring out my soul unto the Lord. When Nehemiah heard of Jerusalem's brokenness, he sat down and wept and prayed and fasted for days. This was the praying of the prophets that we give God no rest, Isaiah 62. That we cling to God like a belt clings to a person's waist, Jeremiah 13. That we go speedily to pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 8. Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, I'm quoting 1 Kings 18, bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees to pray for relief from drought. And scholars say that that was in that time the posture of a woman giving birth. Elijah knew the posture of prayer he was taking. Daniel 9.3 says he turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition for Jerusalem. This is the praying of the Psalms. 
Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed, Psalm 119. Day and night I cry out to you, Psalm 88.1. Turn your ear to my cry. This was the praying of Jesus who offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him, Hebrews 5.7. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, Luke 19. He blessed those with spiritual hunger and thirst. He taught those who followed him to keep on asking and seeking and knocking. He told parables to illustrate how his disciples should keep on praying and not give up. He healed ten with leprosy who called out in a loud voice, the only child of a father who came saying, Teacher, I beg you to look upon my son. Two blind men who when rebuked by the disciples shouted all the louder, Matthew 20 says. And there is no deeper view into the heart of Jesus than Gethsemane, where it was the agony of prayer that drew the first blood of the atonement. We just prayed about that bloody sweat that, that was the agony of his prayer. This is the praying of the early church, cleaving to one another in expectancy before Pentecost. Earnestly praying to to God for Peter in prison. This was the praying of Paul, who implored the Romans by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle, literally agonize with me by praying to God for me. Romans 15.30, he commended Epaphras to the Colossians as one always wrestling in prayer for you. This is praying in the Spirit who intercedes for us through wordless groans. Romans 8.26. And in the Revelation, the only recorded prayer of the Holy Spirit is the urgent cry, Come! Which when united with the prayer of the church is addressed to Jesus, beckoning His thrice-repeated promise, I come quickly! The Bible seems utterly unfamiliar with casual prayer. The prayer of the mouth and not the heart. Travailing prayer. A kind of burdened, focused pressing seems closer to the throbbing core of prayer in Scripture. Wesley had been amazed at the praying he had observed at Herrenhut in Germany so that at the first watch night after his new birth, New Year's Eve, 1738, he was gathered with Whitfield and Charles' brother and about 60 others at Fetter Lane. And he writes in his journal about three in the morning, as we continuing, we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch as that many cried out and many fell to the ground And as soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of His majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. Later on, Wesley called on one who was sorrowing. He writes this, for her son who had turned again to folly. I advised her to wrestle with God for his soul. And in two days, he brought home the wandering sheep, fully convinced of the error of his ways wrestling, like Jacob, wrestling for the blessing. This was a favorite image of Edwards and Finney, of the prayer that sows for awakening. They believed it was not irreverent to be obstinate, to grapple, to join the blessed struggle, Edwards called prayer. Both of them understood how the Spirit could sometimes brood 
over a community as he has been here. Brood over a, a church conceiving new life as he did over chaos in creation. But then it was, the, it was the church's role to pray that new life, to pray those new births into reality, which is why they referred to the church as the mother of the converted. It was the church's labor. It was the church's prayer. And that praying could sound like a woman giving birth. These were intercessors who had been seized by the raw facts of our need for God. Duncan Campbell and the Hebrides used to preach, let us be honest in the presence of God and get right into the grips of reality? Have I a vision of our desperate need? Oh, for a baptism of honesty, for a gripping sincerity that will move us. The first and second awakenings brim with stories of petitioners for whom this honesty produced an agony in prayer, becoming daring and unrelenting and insistent. They write of sweat and heaving and fasting. Finney emphasized praying until we had prayed through to assurance that we had been heard, that it had been done in heaven, and now we could wait and watch for it on earth. But most important to the leaders of awakenings was that none of this courage and audacity and determination in prayer could in any way be manufactured. It wasn't to be self-generated. It was the ministry of the Holy Spirit operating as the spirit of prayer. That phrase is sprinkled all throughout their writings and preaching. The spirit of prayer. This was the number one object of all prayer. The spirit of prayer. More prayer. The answer to prayer was more prayer. Somehow that we would know what God wants and we would offer our faith and voice in it. He would answer it and we would bring it back to him. And through that, in that economy, the work of God, the work of awakening began to occur. This spirit of prayer. Here was to them the key spiritual gift, the essential charism of awakening. God himself, by his spirit, providing the discernment and the faith and the energy and even the language, the very breath and groan for the seeds of awakening. That's how travailing prayer could surge up like a spiritual geyser of holy love overflowing for God and for this world Jesus died to save. That really is what travailing prayer is. Gethsemane, love. Sometimes, Finney wrote, sometimes the conduct of the wicked drives Christians to prayer, breaks them down, makes them sorrowful and tender-hearted, so that they can weep day and night. And instead of scolding the wicked, they pray earnestly for them. Then you may expect a revival, he writes. Indeed, it is begun already. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. You know, I don't know anybody who doesn't deep down feel like I ought to be praying more. I ought to be praying better, myself most of all. And talking about this kind of praying is not in any way intended to give anybody a guilt trip, to sort of say this, this manner of prayer is superior to any other. Guilt is a very short-lived, shallow incentive for prayer, ultimately ineffective. But I am wondering if there might be anyone here who, yearn, who is yearning for a better day, who would offer God an openness to become less casual in praying for it. I would be so bold to say that nothing could be more important. Nothing really is more needed in your seminary training than this. 
Some believe awakening is implausible today. The times are too different. Our context is too resistant. And thinking about travailing prayer is not in any way trying to sort of reconstruct something from the past. But every context of awakening has seemed entirely impossible. I mean, the gospel languished under corruption for nearly a thousand years until the Reformation. Those in the past who had the same desire for God's deliverance as we do believe that this manner of prayer would cause us to prize the gift of awakening and love the giver all the more. That the delay and the perseverance would purify us and humble the church and make us more ready to receive. Not turning prayer into a work, not in any way thinking that we can earn God's favors by becoming more loud or dramatic in our praying, but being willing to be more experimental in our prayers, less inhibited, more united in the true ecumenical spirit Wesley advocated, less worried about what anybody thinks. So far as I know myself, Wesley wrote, I have no more concern for the reputation of Methodism or for my own than the reputation of Prester John. Listen, a healed culture and a renewed church and restored lives will be pretty messy and costly stuff to those who love these things and long for them. Reputation is the first thing to go in this kind of praying and leading. Jesus said our seeds have to die before anything will grow. And maybe it comes to mind what you might need to bury in order for awakening to spring up. Distraction, pride, too busy, attitude of expertise, self-sufficiency, affluence, being hip, avoidance, ease. I wonder what else it would take for us to move into the direction of travailing prayer. Just how bad is it going to have to get if we're not there already? I wonder if there are any sowers here today who'd be willing to regain an awakening sensibility. That grip of empirical honesty Campbell spoke of, kind of a heartache that we just cannot shake until we pray it out. I wonder if there's anyone here today who'd be willing to receive a sympathy with God. That was Finney's phrase. I think that's a part of what was happening here on Monday. Yeah, there was a financial need. and We could pray about that. But I wonder how God sees that. I wonder how God sees, is there, some, is there even a deeper, greater need that God's getting our attention? We could pray that way. Could we look into it that way? Could we have sympathy with God's view of the need and pray as He would see it? That's what, that's what Finney believed that the prayer meeting was more important than the preaching meeting for convincing sinners because if they could see the church agonizing over them, in prayer, they would have a picture of the sympathy of God. They would have an idea of just how much God loved them. Prayer was proof of the love of God in the awakenings. Anyone here willing to let God give you a share of His holy love for the world, voiced not, first not in pulpits or blogs or books or tweets or workshops or newsletters, but in closets... I wonder if there are any followers of Christ here willing to, to receive this gift that has preceded the awakening works of God. I was at a leadership conference in London about a year and a half ago, 6,000 of us in the Royal Albert Hall, when the speaker felt compelled to call us into a season of waiting and prayer, which we did for what came to feel like a pretty awkwardly long time, at least 15 minutes or more of silence, until finally that silence was broken by what I could only describe as 
contractions of prayer. Moaning, sobbing, pleading, travailing, without words. And the speaker shepherded those moments perfectly. It was as though the Spirit was giving voice voice through some to our collective heart cry for more of His love and power in our day. And I later spoke with Pete Gregg, who's kind of a leader in 24-7 prayer. He's spoken here at Asbury in the past. He was there, and he commented on how he's becoming persuaded that the Spirit is wanting to reintroduce this gift of travail to the West, that maybe we are growing more ready to reclaim it. And you know, I've wondered about that. This gift that was so crucial for so long, this, this power and, and love of God that poured through our prayers into the culture, through the church for nearly two centuries... if the Spirit may have withdrawn that gift from us for a season because there were so few looking for it, so few willing to take it up, so few who felt the need for it. And I'm wondering if there is anyone here today willing to explore this kind of servant ministry, this gift by which the Spirit gives our prayers integrity, their expression commensurate with, proportionate to the depth and intensity of the need. Six years of research have convinced me that very little may happen for good in our world or in the church until more of us have stepped into that. Would all of us be willing to give up less easily in prayer? To take more risks in prayer? To be bold and tenacious again, which may mean finding healing from past disappointments in prayer. But whatever it might summon from you, who yearn for a better day. Is there anyone here at Asbury who has a heart for awakening and would be willing to sow for it? Travailing prayer is not the only thing we do, but it is the first thing, and it is the most important thing. You who are now crying are blessed, Jesus promised in Luke 6 for you will laugh with joy. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. That is God's promise to travailing prayer. And He is too worthy. Awakening is too beautiful. And our need for it is too great to settle for anything less. Would you bow your hearts with me? And as we pray, if you wish, just as a gesture of receptivity and openness, I'd invite you to, to just open your palms upward and lay them on your lap. If you wish. We say to you, Christ, our intercessor. We bring ourselves to you, Lord, as petitioners, as servants in prayer, acknowledging, Lord, this to be the essential core of our ministry, of our vocation, of our calling, to be deeply 
dependent and reliant upon you and our relationship with you. To be willing, Lord, to do as we did on, on Monday, to make that our lifestyle and to just come into a place of rhythm, of deepening life with you in prayer. So, Lord, into our open hearts, into our open lives, we ask you to pour out your spirit of prayer. We acknowledge humbly, Lord, that prayer is nothing we can make happen. It is something you desire to give us. Just as you did with the disciples, you are ready and willing to teach us to pray. You're even willing to give us the prayers, the things on your heart, Lord. We want to see, Lord, we ask you to give gifts of discernment that we could see with the eyes of God. We ask for gifts of knowledge and revelation so that our prayers, Lord, are prayers in the Spirit, not just on the surface of our, of our stream of consciousness, Lord, but coming from that deep place where you are speaking. and You're giving us utterance. Lord, into our open hearts today, we pray that you would give to us healing of anything that may be hindering us from trusting you more boldly in prayer. Anything, Lord, that may be hindering us from importunity, from tenacity and determination in prayer. Lord, there are in our hearts and lives today situations that seem utterly impossible. And this can sometimes, Lord, cause us to feel a, a kind of a, a withdrawal or, or a, a desire to kind of shrink back a bit. And we ask you, Lord, to give us fresh faith today, growing faith. Lord, give us new gifts of encouragement to lean in and trust you all the more. And Lord, to just continue to, to know that you are helping us pray. Lord, it may be that there are some here today that are open and willing to receive this charism, this gift of travail, that there might be some of us here, Lord, who are willing to be burdened greatly in prayer. And so, Lord, we ask for this. We ask you, Lord, to sow this gift into your church and let that be happening here. Lord, we receive this from you. We ask you, Lord, to call us into this kind of birthing prayer through which you can bring the new things that we need to see, the new work, the awakening that we so long for in our day. Lord, we receive from you today by faith this gift. And then, Lord, we pray for the movement of prayer that is stirring in the Asbury community, both here locally as, as we can see each other and digitally in the fellowship of Seedbed and New Room and in the larger Asbury community among alums and into churches. Lord, we ask that you continue to weave our hearts together into to some form of unity and common voice that you, you would show us the way that we can be concerted in this kind of praying and we could walk together and, and, and move in the ways that you are calling us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, let that continue. Even though we're kind of coming to the end of this academic year, we pray that it will not come to the end of your movement of prayer. Instead, Lord, that would only grow as we scatter over the summer and that we would come back and we would feel those flames burning and we would bring those embers back into that critical mass and see the coming year be an even greater year of prayer. Let this be, Lord, this is our heart. This is our great desire. And we pray, Lord, that in it all, you would shower love into our hearts, 
Pour out your love by your Holy Spirit. Patience with each other's different styles of prayer. Great love and all the intercession we offer to one another. We pray, Lord, you would forge deep unity in our prayers, that we would be so humble and submissive to one another in our praying, that we would not need to be prominent in the prayer movement, that we could all just sort of just yield it to you and continue to give up the platform and just share that with each other because that's, Lord, when you can step up and lead and do the things that only you can do. So we're going to trust you, Lord, just to infuse love into every voice of prayer, every word of prayer that's that's shared. And Lord, for every good thing, and we believe already good things, but so many more good things we believe are on the way as a result of this, we give you thanks in advance. We present our petitions with thanksgiving in advance for the good that you will do. We thank you and honor you and praise you as our God. We thank you that you are our, a prayer-hearing God, a prayer-answering God. And we believe you've heard the prayers of this week, you've heard the, heard the prayers of these moments, and we thank you and believe that your answers are on the way. In Jesus' name, amen.